every building, every house, every stall, every edifice, every wall would be thrown down stone by stone. You have to imagine that the army of Titus would go through that city and they were instructed to not leave one stone in a wall, not one stone in a building. They literally dismantled the entire city, every structure within that city. This was, of course, Satan's effort to erase every semblance of God from his people and, of course, from the earth itself. But God had a plan. God always has a plan. And I think it would behoove all of us to find out what his plan is for right now and become a part of God's plan. So approximately 37 years before this destruction would occur, the veil of the temple would be rent from top to bottom. God at that moment would remove his covenant spirit, his covenant presence from the building and from the place within which it resided. Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4 tells us where his presence went. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Let me tell you, you should not be content just to be in the house where the Spirit of God is. You should not be satisfied to just be in the same room where the Spirit of God is manifested. For it goes on to say, And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit of God gave them utterance. Acts chapter 7, 48 goes on to say, How be it, the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. And so while the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem was highly celebrated by many, God was not even there when they tore that temple down. You want to know, if you want to know what's funny, he wasn't even in that temple anymore. He, they didn't even accomplish what they thought they were going to accomplish. He had already got up and went someplace else. And where did he go? He went in to his church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17. Now, or know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, you won't need Titus, you won't need his army, you won't need the Romans, you won't need the heathens. He said, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy which temple ye are, making a point that the temple is no longer there. And so God dwells someplace else, and he dwells in you, 
and he dwells in me. But what is often overlooked is that for the last 2,000 years, the church of the living God has also served as a representative agent for the entire city of Jerusalem. We have served as a representative agent, not just for the temple, but for the holy city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital of the modern nation of Israel. You do know, however, that the United Nations has never recognized Jerusalem as their capital. They only recognize Tel Aviv because of their relationship with the Palestinians. In fact, they still to this day recognize the Hebrew people as foreign invaders to the land of Israel to this very day. And so Jerusalem is the, the God-chosen capital of Israel. It is a major holy city for three uh, major religions in the world, three Western traditions called Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And even though it is not recognized by the UN, it is the most holy and the most sacred soil, dirt, sand, combination of the both in the entire world. It is a holy, holy place. It sits on spurs of bedrock between the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea area. To the north and west, it tapers off to the Jezreel Valley and the hills of Galilee, while to the south lies the Judean desert. The city is surrounded by three steep ravines to the east, south, and west. And on the other side of the eastern ravine, if you were looking at a map, to the eastern ravine of the side of the Kedron Valley, just 1.8 miles, is the, is the Mount of Olivet, or what's also called the Mount of Olives. Because of strong and age-old historical and religious associations with Jerusalem, bloody conflicts to control the holy city and sites within it have been waged for thousands of years, even predating that of Jesus Christ. It will be the major site and reason why the armies of the world will mount up against Israel and surround the city of Jerusalem. It will be the reason they will gather there to once again destroy the city and the people that lives therein. Some of our Lord's first verbal affections for the city of Jerusalem are stated in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Then said Solomon, the Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick darkness, but I have built a house of habitation for thee and a place for thy dwelling forever. And the king turned his face and blessed the whole congregation of Israel and all the congregation of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who hath with his hands fulfilled that which he spoke with his mouth to my father David, saying, Since the day that I brought forth my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city among all the tribes of Israel to build a house in that my name might be there, Neither chose I any man to be a ruler and over my people Israel. But I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there and have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Four things 
emerge from these passages of Scripture that are both striking and significant. First of which is that Solomon's use of the term forever. I'm going to build something that's going to last forever. Uh huh. I'm going to build this out of stone and, and out of mortar and gold and brass and precious metal. It's going to be here forever. Uh huh. It's going to be there forever, Solomon, but not the way that you think. Secondly, God chose Jerusalem. He chose it. It was God's choice. It wasn't a coincidence that they were there in Jerusalem and there the temple would be built. Thirdly, that is where God would put his name. Fourthly, if that is a word, even though he was dead, God chose David to be over his people. Now the fourth declaration would have confused the people in that day. They were probably scratching their heads. Wait a minute, wait a minute, whoa. Back that horse up. David's dead. David's not here anymore. So how is David going to be over my people Israel? Little did they know that that was a messianic prophecy concerning the Messiah who was set on the throne of David and rule of which his kingdom there would be no end. There's the forever. But Solomon's reference to forever is significant because during its long history, Jerusalem would be destroyed twice besieged 23 times, attacked 52 times, captured and recaptured 44 times. Little did Solomon know that that beautiful temple that he was building and dedicating unto the Lord would eventually be completely decimated and the holy city would be left in ruins. So was Solomon's assertion wrong? Of course not. Was God's choosing of Jerusalem a poor choice? Of course not. Because even though Jerusalem would many times be turned into rubble, left uninhabitable, or at best be inhabited by the Gentiles, it would strangely remain at the center of God's affection. That is a mystery. In fact, it is the mystery of the church. During the 800 years, approximately 800 years, that the Romans and the Ottomans uh, controlled the city and occupied the city of Jerusalem, God never lost his love nor his affection for this holy place. For nearly two millennium, God's love and hope for the city of Jerusalem did not depend upon the physical state, nor did it depend on the geographical location did not depend on the longitude and the latitude of the city of Jerusalem itself, but it rested solely upon the church. The church. In Hebrews chapter 12, two verses of scripture, 22 and 23, but you're come unto Mount Zion. Do you believe that scripture applies to us? Other than the uh, locks, I don't know that anybody else here has really been to Mount Zion. Awesome place. You want to know the truth? You're there right now. For you come unto Mount Zion and under the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Don't you wish you could see them right now? 
They are here. They are always here. They will be with you when you leave here. So there is a heavenly or a spiritual Jerusalem. Verse 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect. John on the Isle of Patmos saw this as clearly as anybody before the book of Hebrews was written or any of the other epistles were written. In Revelation 21 and 2, he said, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In case you've ever wondered about this, a literal city is not going to descend from heaven and land in the geographical area located in the Middle East. If you've ever wondered, this is not talking about a physical, literal city. However, the holy city or the new Jerusalem that John saw is the church of Jesus Christ who is the bride that is adorned for her husband. While Jerusalem laid waste for 2,000 years, the church, the redeemed of God, retained its beauty, retained its holiness. And when the church returns with their Messiah, that is when New Jerusalem, the bride adorned for her husband, will descend with him in order for him to establish his millennial reign upon the earth. But what John saw was what Abraham searched for his entire life. Hebrews 11.10, For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, is the church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Men built Jerusalem. Men built the temple. Men built all of the structures in Jerusalem, but no man has put his hand upon the church. God has built this church himself. That is what Abraham searched for. He wasn't looking for some special place with a water well and a stream flowing through and shade trees. He wasn't looking for an earthly oasis. He was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. There are so many verses of Scripture to substantiate this. But I will only give you a few. 1 Corinthians 3.11 For other foundation can no man lay then that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, 6, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. The stone which the builders disallowed. The same has been made the head of the corner. You want to know the cornerstone of this church? It's Jesus Strangely enough, the city of Jerusalem 
was not even mentioned in the Bible until the 10th chapter of Joshua, which means it's not even mentioned one time in the Pentateuch. Now think about that for a moment. It's not mentioned even one time in the first five books of the Bible. It's not mentioned until the book of Joshua, and even then, it's not necessarily a strategic uh, uh, location to the nation of Israel who is on the, in the process of conquering Canaan and claiming the land as their own. And at the time of the conquest of Canaan, Jerusalem was one of five major cities uh, that were within the Amorite Empire. And Jerusalem was one of them. And the king of Jerusalem, the king of this empire, was Adonai Zedek. And, and he was over the city of Jerusalem. At that time, it had never really been inhabited for any length of time by, well, at all by the Hebrew people. Uh, years later, when David would become king of Israel, something would stir within him. Now, we don't know what it is. We, he was just moved by God. He was just inspired to, to pick up and move his palace and his, his entire operation, amen, from Hebron and go to Jerusalem. There was something in him. You know, I, we know what it is. It was the Spirit of God just moving him to do that. You ever done something you just knew was, you were just moved to do this? Well, David was moved. He wasn't instructed, at least not that we can tell uh, according to the, the historicity of the Scripture. And so he picked up and moved his entire headquarters from Hebron to Jerusalem, therefore making for the first time Jerusalem the capital of Israel. When David took the fortress of Zion from the Jebusites a thousand years before Christ, the city was called Jebus. Now, it had been called Jerusalem prior to this, but the Jebusites took the city, and they changed the name to Jebus. But when David conquered the city, he changed it back to Jerusalem. Again, where is it written down? The city's got to be called Jerusalem. Where did this come from? Shortly after this, David would move the Ark of God from Gibeah to Jerusalem and, of course, place it within a tent that he would erect, a very special place called the Tabernacle of David. And then the city would come to be known as the City of David. Theories abound as to how Jerusalem got its name. If you research it, you'll see a number of different things. I'm going to tell you what I believe. You can believe whatever you want to believe, but I'm just going to tell you what I believe. Um, because I believe the way that Jerusalem got its name speaks to its importance to God and why God chose that city. First of all, Genesis chapter 12, begin in verse 1. Now the Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. A land, not a place, a land. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So God's call to Abraham led him to the land of Canaan, but not to any one particular location. He built altars in different places, Bethel being one of them, Beersheba, uh, Gilgal, but uh, he was not really... Uh, he was not really instructed to dwell in, one, in any one particular place. And so it's written that after they departed out of Hebron, or Haran rather, they went forth, the Bible says, to go into the land of Canaan, into the land of Canaan, they came. And so his journeyings would take him all over the place. He would journey from Sychem to Egypt back again. He would drive his tent stakes, lead his flocks, build his altars in all kinds of places throughout this peculiar land wherever God would lead him to go. Abraham, in fact, would have no particular affinity at all 
our attraction to this holy landscape called Jerusalem in question until the 22nd chapter of Genesis, until something uh, would happen. And that's in, in, in uh, the time when we're all familiar with this. I would like to shorten this, but to maintain context, I have to read these things. Genesis 22, 2, and he said, Take now thy son. Everybody remember this? Their only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee. Remember two mountains, Zion and Moriah. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his ass, took two of his young men, him, Isaac his son, and cleaved the wood of the burnt offering, rose up and went unto the place which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. At the time that God gave this strange and unnerving uh, command unto Abraham, he was encamped in Beersheba. Beersheba is approximately 44 miles from Moriah, from Mount Moriah. Notably, Abraham could have done what God told him to do on any of the mountains in the vicinity of, of Beersheba or where he lived, but God specifically sent him to Moriah. You serve, you serve a God of, of great detail. God is very specific about what we have to do to be saved, to get into the kingdom of God. He's very specific about doctrine and, and the, uh, the laws of the kingdom of God. And so Moriah was where God told him to go, and it was one of the two cities in Jerusalem. Verse 10, and Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Now let me assure you right now, God already knew Abraham's heart. But Abraham had to go to Moriah for the purpose of which you will see in just a moment. Abraham lifted up his eyes, looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering instead of his son. If you try to figure out the reason why God is having you do what he is having you do, you will either not do it or you will drive yourself crazy. So after the ram is caught in the thicket, he took Isaac off the altar. Moment of relief. Verse 14 says, And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the moment or in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Of course, it also refers to God as provider. So as it turns out, Moriah was not an unfamiliar place to Abraham because in the 14th chapter of Genesis, when he led his men against Ketelaomer, who had taken Lot and his family prisoner, who had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and taken many prisoners. When he defeated Ketelaomer and set Lot and the other captives free, he found himself at the end of this battle, guess where? At Moriah. In verse 17, the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Ketelaomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shava which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, 
brought forth bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. He was both king and priest. This is pre-law, pre-Mosaic law. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And he blessed the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him, that's Abraham gave to Melchizedek, tithes of all. So Melchizedek served as both priest of the Most High God and also the king of Salem. Though not much is known about this priestly king, he was very significant to God's plan for mankind, for Hebrews chapter 5 and 6 would declare, Thou art a priest forever, referring to Jesus Christ, after the order of Melchizedek. And why would that be? Because Jesus is both king of kings and he's also our high priest, which the law would not allow that. And so he became priest and king after the order of Melchizedek. But this also makes Abraham's encounter and relationship with this priest of king extremely important. So we have two significant figures, men of God, converging at the very same location that is going to become known as the city of God. So if Melchizedek is the priest and king of Salem, and Abraham called Mount Moriah Jehovah-Jarrah, Jarrah-Salim, Jarrah-Salim. Jerusalem. Oh, yeah. You better believe it, Will. It was not an accident that it became known as that. It was not strange heathen people that decided to call this holy city Jerusalem. But it was God himself that combined two men in their service to him to call this city Jerusalem. As the earthly representation of both the temple of God now and the city of Jerusalem, we as priests and kings, we as priests and kings wield a tremendous amount of power and authority in this city. My God. The new Jerusalem that Abraham searched for and that John saw in his vision is occupied by warriors, worshipers, and royalty. Warriors, worshipers, and royalty. There isn't any other kind of man or woman in this city. You're a warrior, a worshiper, and you're royalty. You're a warrior, you're a king, and you're a priest. Don't tell me you can't worship God. Don't tell me you can't praise God. Don't tell me it doesn't fit your personality. Don't, maybe it did the first time you were born. But when you're born again into the kingdom of God, you become a priest and a king in the new Jerusalem that will be established and maintain its place in the world for over 2,000 years. Don't tell me that the, the new man is not a worshiper. Don't tell me that the new woman is not a worshiper. But I really free, briefly want to return very quickly to 2 Chronicles 6, 2 and 6 because I want to make a point, a doctrinal point. 
says, but I have built a house of habitation for thee and a place for thy dwelling forever. But I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. That's verse number 6. And I have chosen David to be over my people. Now, it's important to point out that the only acceptable, viable, and legal place where a person takes on the name of Jesus Christ within their conversion experience is in water baptism. It's the only place you can confess Jesus as your Savior 10,000 times every day. The only place that a convert takes on the name of Jesus is when they're baptized in water in that glorious and holy name. But the point also is that God's presence dwelt in the temple. Of course, the temple that Solomon built and Jerusalem was one city in the whole world where God chose to put his name. When you understand this, many of the scriptures you read about Jerusalem, about Zion, and about Moriah carry a dual meaning. Not just referring to the geographical Zion, and so it's very important that we understand that the integrity, the longevity, and the strength of Jerusalem is within the church. It's within us. So, wow, that really blows my mind. Well, it ought to. And so the church, it stands to reason if the church is to serve as the temple of God's presence and spirit and preserve the sacredness of the holy city for the next 2,000 years, it would have to be built to withstand extreme pressure. It would have to be constructed in a way that hell itself could not destroy it, that hell itself could not tear it down. So the devil has had 2,000 years to emaciate and desecrate the church and he hasn't been able to do it, what in the world are you worried about? What in the world are you so upset about? He has thrown everything in his arsenal at the church, not for a decade, not for a century, for 2,000 years and has failed every single time. What I believe, God wants you to come to the revelation of who you are in his kingdom. Not for the next 15 minutes, so you might get a little blessing in church, but so you can walk out of these doors, you can look the devil in the eye and say, I am a priest, I am a king, and I am a warrior. Because if you're in the kingdom, there are no other citizens in Jerusalem other than that. The Lord's commitment to the sustainability of his church once again is that which he said to Peter in Matthew 16, 18, upon this rocks, I'll build it. Solomon couldn't build it to stand, but I'm going to build this church to stand. 
Man's not going to build something by their own power and might that will be able to stand. But what I'm getting ready to build, it will stand the test of time. It will carry you into eternity. It will be there, amen, throughout the centuries. Within the city of Jerusalem, these two mountains, Zion and Moriah, continue to stand today. Mount Zion is the location of the infamous fortress. It was made, it's what made Jerusalem the most fortified citadel in all of the world. It was reputed throughout the Middle East. When the city was under siege by enemy forces, everybody outside of the fortress in the city of Jerusalem would run into the fortress of Zion for protection from the invading army. Proverbs 18 and 10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Only if you use it, saints. Only if you call on it. Only if you speak it when you're, when you're in trouble. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous do what? They run into it. They run into it. And they find safety. Devil, you can't follow me in here. You can't go with me in here. You can't follow me in the tower of his name. You can't follow me in praise. You can't follow me in worship. You can't go where I'm going. It is a name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. My God, I'm not preaching about some ancient fortress that no longer exists. I'm not preaching about a real or legitimate place called Zion. I'm preaching about the only place on this earth where God has chosen to place his name there, and that is in his church. You know, one of the greatest benefits of gathering together like this for praise and worship and the ministry of the word is because while we're here, the devil cannot touch us. While we're here, the devil cannot reach us. You might fight devils till you get to that front door. I'm going to tell you, this place has been sanctified by prayer. You need deliverance. You're in the right place. You need to be set free from your depression. You're in the right place. You need deliverance from the spirit of fear. You're in the right place. This is Zion. Not the building, not the property, the people. You might as well do it now. It's not going to be this easy about an hour from now. It's not going to be this easy. Later on this afternoon, when the devil jumps on your back and says you're just a pile of nothing. You know what I tell the devil when he tells me that? Look what God made out of nothing. Look what God made out of dirt. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And if that wasn't enough, he saved us by his grace. The Psalms speak of the strength of this in Psalms 2 and 1. Why do the heathen rage? Why in the world? This is for you. Come on. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Good question, right? 
the kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Go ahead and mock all you want to because we got verse 4 that says, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill Zion. Prophet Isaiah saw some things in the spirit. Chapter 59, 19, so shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun when the enemy shall come in like a flood and he will. The spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him and he will. Ha <laughs> ha, hallelujah. Come on, when the enemy comes in like a flood, and he will, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him, and he will. I'll put my God up against the devil any day. I'll put my God up against the, the prince of this city any day. I'll put my God up against the enemies of God any day. You need to stop talking about how sick you are, how bad you are, how hurt you are. You need to start giving glory to God Almighty. You need to start blessing God with your lips. And here it is. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob saith the Lord. My gosh, hallelujah. I feel like I can go another round with the devil. Put me back in, God. Come on, put me back in. Come on, Jesus, put me back in again. <laughs> Come on, let's praise God for a little bit. Come on, let's exalt the captain of our salvation. Let's lift up the name of our Redeemer. Ah! Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. I am a warrior. I am a worshiper. And I am royalty. Thank you, Jesus. This is not some temporary victory. We're getting a hold of something real here. That doesn't get your motor running. Look at Psalms 132. 13, and the Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation. Her saints shall shout aloud for joy. My God, he fashioned and built this church to be stronger than real and literal Zion could ever be.
Isaiah 16 18, violence shall no more be heard in thy land, wasting nor destruction within thy borders, but thou shalt call thy walls salvation and thy gates praise. <laughs> you understand what this salvation is? It is, an, it is an impenetrable wall. Salvation. When you declare it, when you live it, when you embrace it, when you believe in it, that salvation of God, it's not just something that happened to you when you were a kid or something 20 years ago. That salvation of God is a wall. The devil can't breach it. Hell can't breach it. Nothing can get through it. And the only thing that opens the gates is praise. My God, this church is well fortified. You may be seated, but Zion's reputation does not rest alone on the strength of its walls or its impassable gates. Zion was occupied by Israel's fiercest and most elite warriors. If you were assigned as a soldier in Zion, you were at the top of your game. And so the church that Jesus built, you think he's going to put a bunch of puny, weak, half-backslidden warriors on this wall? Uh-uh. No way. Not going to happen. The church that he built is also occupied by warriors that are formidable in their own right. Not only are they fearless, they are, you are, the most dedicated and loyal people in the world. Oh, yeah. Not only are they loyal and dedicated, they're clothed in a kind of armor. And listen to me. That only the redeemed can wear. You can't even put the armor on if you're not redeemed by the blood of Jesus. It is unlike any armor that has ever been worn before. It is made from materials that are indestructible and impervious to any weapon that could possibly be formed against it. The armor of God it's made of divine substances such as salvation, such as righteousness, such as truth, such as the gospel of peace and faith. Those are divine substances. If you're down a little bit, try putting something else on for a change. If the devil's backed you into a corner with no way out, try putting salvation on for a change. You know what it does? It protects your mind, your eyes, and your ears. Devil can't talk to me when I got the helmet on. 
devil can't get to my mind when I got the helmet on. The only thing I can hear is the voice of God. Every other voice is tuned out. You got a problem with different voices? Put on the helmet. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I was praying a few days ago. Was it was praying in the spirit and I said something. And 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 it was strange to me what came out of my mouth. And and uh, I didn't even think of it at the time. I thought of it later. The Bible says in Isaiah 66 that until Zion travailed, but when Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. So I'm praying in the spirit, and I said this in the Holy Ghost. I said, the warriors of Zion that weep resist the devil. And I stopped and said, can I say that? And the voice said, you better believe you can. Because when Zion begins to weep, when Zion begins to travail, the devil will retreat because God is, in the, is getting ready to save somebody. God's letting some people go. When Zion, come on, Zion needs to learn how to weep in the spirit. So why does the devil flee from a child of God? Because we wield weapons and we wear armor that is capable of pulling down his strongholds. <coughs> the Bible says there are weapons that are mighty through God, mighty through God. If you stop using your own fleshly weapons, you might get somewhere. <clears throat> what are the weapons of our warfare? Have you ever thought about it? If you came up to me right now and handed me a samurai sword, I, I'd probably hurt somebody with it, but I don't think that I could defend myself against another person who was skilled with a samurai sword. To your friend, I don't know how to use the weapons. That's right, you don't. Because you don't get in line and walk through a line where, where they hand you some kind of weapon. Going, what is this? I've never used this before. The weapons that are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds are forged in your own altar. They're forged in the fires of your own prayer, intercession, and devotion to God. They're not something that just handed to us from some ethereal uh, arsenal somewhere. They're weapons you discover when you're in the Holy Ghost. They're weapons you discover when you're caught away in worship. They're weapons you find out that you put your hands on, amen, when you're, you're in the hot coals of an apostolic prayer meeting somewhere. You walked in without them, but you walk out with a different set of weapons. Why do I need to go to the all-night prayer meeting? That's why. Why do I need to go early Sunday morning? That's why. Why do I need to go to these corporate prayer meetings? That's why. How are you doing on your own? How are you doing out there by yourself? You say, I'm making it. Yeah, but making it's not revival. You say, I'm, I'm surviving. Yeah, but that's not going to bring the drug addict in. Not, that's not going to deliver the prostitute. That's not going to bring revival to our city. We can just make it. But that's not God's will for Zion. Too many of us are just making it. We're just jibber-jabbering in tongues a little bit. Been feeling good that we're still saved, or, or so we think. We were blocked out of church from COVID. 
I had a word from the Lord for the, the worship team. Y'all remember? I said that you need to stop praying to blessing. You need to start praying to anointing. We pray to blessing. Oh, yeah, I, I get the blessing. Yeah. Cast the devil out of somebody with that. Come on, cast the devil out of somebody. Blessing ain't going to cut it. The kind of revival God wants to give us is way past that, ladies and gentlemen. You're going to be dealing with darkness and hell and devils. Musicians, worship team. Of course, we're given a sword that's sharper than any two-edged sword. I'm telling you, our weapons are superior to anything that the devil has uh, at his disposal. And so while the actual physical Zion in the city of Jerusalem is currently little more than a tourist site, God has given his church power and authority. Why? Because we're priests and kings and warriors. He's given us dunamis power, exousia authority. You didn't earn it. You didn't get promoted to that. It's given to every citizen of New Jerusalem. Every, every citizen is given this power and authority. Why? So that we can secure both the integrity and honor of the city of Jerusalem until Jesus Christ comes again in the hooves of his horse land upon the Mount of Olivet and it cleaves in twain and reestablishes the holiness, the integrity, and the righteousness of the literal city of Jerusalem, of Mount Zion and Moriah. <clears throat> I do have to say a word about Moriah. Um, Moriah, of course, is where Abraham took Isaac to offer him as a burnt offering. Thankfully, God stepped in. It was also the place, if you call when when David numbered um, the uh, armies of Israel and God sent judgment. He chose three days pestilence from the Lord and the angel was stopped. God said, stop right there. And it was stopped at Moriah in the threshing floor of uh, Aruna. And that is where David went, bought the threshing floor and and he offered a burnt offering unto God there. So he said, I, I will not offer the Lord a burnt offering of that which cost me nothing. That happened at Moriah. The, this place was not just randomly chosen. God didn't draw things out of a barrel and, oh, it picked a page that had Jerusalem on it. So it's also, of course, where Solomon built the temple. It is now the site where, and this, is, this just irritates me to no end, and it ought to irritate you. It is the site of the Mosque of Omar, a heathen, godless, uh, violent, religious group of people that uh, still claim that Abraham is their founder. It is the site of that temple, but it will be the site. Israel is going to build a temple, ladies and gentlemen, on that site, on Mount Moriah, specifically on Moriah. So while Zion was where the citizens of Jerusalem took refuge, Moriah was where the warriors went for their own rest and reprieve. My wife just made a, another prayer shawl for Sister Galan. 
because she's a warrior, and the Lord showed her she needs to, she needs to, at times break from that, and she needs to rejoice and have joy. And so, He led her to make her a prayer shawl specifically for that. And and sometimes you need to take the warrior off and put the, put the worshiper on. Amen. That's every every warrior needs that opportunity. So the reason we can worship in Moriah is because of men and women on the wall in Zion. Praise God. If they ever abandon the walls of Zion, the fortress of Zion, we'll never have another breakthrough there. We'll never have another great service. We'll never see signs, wonders, and miracles. The reason we can worship like we did today was because of the warriors that are in Zion, standing on the wall. And the reason that faithful men and women are able to stand on the wall is because of worshipers in Moriah. Say, what what is all this worship stuff? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. The warriors in Zion can guard Zion because of the worship that's going on in Moriah. And every warrior sometimes have to take off his armor, her armor, and put on the garments of praise and slip out of the side door and get down in Moriah and do a little dancing, do a little rejoicing. There's, there's, there are men on the wall. There's women on the wall. It, it's not vacated. It's not abandoned. Uh, they're still there. And, and, and they'll, put their, they'll put their armor back on, and they'll go back to Moriah. But I'm going to tell you something. If you're in the kingdom of God, you, you split your devotion between Moriah and Zion. That sometimes you're in Zion and sometimes you're in Moriah. Back and forth because it's God's way. Stand with me, please. <clears throat> the Lord brought this to me. I didn't know if I would share it or not, but 301 men defeated an army of 135,000. You know, after they won the war, other Israelites came out of the woods saying, hey, why didn't you call us to the battle? That's the way it always is. After you win the victory, they'll say, well, hey, man, why didn't you call me? But the 300 was nothing without the one that being Gideon. And so they somehow by faith in their association with Gideon's anointing, they became a part of his anointing. The same thing happened to David. There were 600 men that became the mighties of David simply because they came underneath the fountain of David's anointing. And I mean, these guys were unbelievable. All because they come under David's anointing. It was 600 plus one. Where does that leave us? 
We are however many we are plus one. But we don't come under Jesus' anointing. We don't just associate with him and his anointing. He is in us. His power is in us. His name is in us. His blood covers us. If David's men can do what they did, if Gideon's men could do what they did, by mere association, what are we capable of? With the fact that Jesus Christ is in us, giving us power and authority. You need to find out who you are. And when you do, devil, you better look out. But I leave you with this, and I, I do mean this. Two minutes. This group of worshipers, warriors, and royalty of which we speak, the rapture of the church, the coming of the Lord, that by the way is really getting close. The rapture of the church is not going to save us from the devil. It's going to save the devil from us. I'm serious. Read the book for yourself. Get in the book. His hands are tied. He can't do what he wants to do until God takes us out of the world. And so it's not going to be a grand evacuation. It's going to be a grand departure. God's not going to evacuate us. We're just going to leave triumphantly. And we're not going to limp into heaven. And we're not going to be greeted by people already there going, oh, you must have went through hell. No, we're going to be greeted by, well done, thou good and faithful servant. There's going to be shouting, celebrating, and rejoicing. But I want to start right now. I want to start right here. Go ahead and sing it. I'm ready right now. Come on, you need more than a blessing. You need an anointing. sound of today. Let's send hell a message. Come on, say
your worship and praise. Spend a little time in Zion. When you come down from Zion in the Moriah, you will worship God like you've never worshiped before. Because it is your preparation to go back into battle. Hallelujah, Jesus. Come on, Moriah needs Zion and Zion needs Moriah. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus.
in here and get them saved until we're healed ourselves. Praise God. Don't forget your offering. If you know how to text it in, 
it's your preference, then do it. Uh, if you're watching online, you're not released. You're a member of this church. You're not released from tithes and offerings. You're not released from it. You still have an obligation. And if I'm on my deathbed and I got $40 in my checking account, on my way out, I'm going to write that tithe check for $40 because I still want to go to heaven. Offering pans are out as much as you can from a safe distance. Encourage one another in the Lord. Wave encouragement to everybody. Speak encouragement to them. I mean, God bless you. You're dismissed right now. Justin and Stephanie, make sure you greet them. Put a blessing on them in Jesus' name.